Some people call it a legend, others call it a lie. Is there a monster in the Loch Ness Bog? Or is Nessie just a horrible apparition swimming deep in the Scottish folklore? This is audio taken from a trailer for the 1981 film The Loch Ness Horror. It's one of the many movies based on the folkloric Scottish creature affectionately known as Nessie, and its plot... One man searches for science, another wants to pilfer for profit, but both find bloody horror. ...would serve as an archetype of sorts for many of the Loch Ness Monster-adjacent films that would come after, such as Magic in the Water and Loch Ness, both of which I saw in theaters after incessantly begging my parents to take me. From the time I was young, even up to today, I have always been absolutely obsessed with monsters of all sorts. When I was very little, it was movie monsters. Gremlins, Jurassic Park, Creatures from the Black Lagoon, these were a few of the movies that were in heavy rotation at my house. As I got a little older and became aware of cryptids, that is, animals that are believed to exist by some but are not recognized by science, such as Bigfoot, the Mothman, and the aforementioned Loch Ness Monster, it was only natural that my obsession with movie monsters would be transferred onto these quote-unquote real monsters. In fourth grade, we did presentations on what we wanted to be when we grew up, and I said that I wanted to be a cryptozoologist. In particular, I was fascinated by the Loch Ness Monster because it has often been theorized by cryptozoologists that Nessie is a plesiosaur, and the idea that a relict aquatic reptile from the Cretaceous period was living in caves in a Scottish lake was just so cool to me. Of course, as I grew older, the impossibility of such a thing just couldn't be ignored. But there will always be a part of me that, just like Special Agent Fox Mulder in the X-Files, wants to believe. So my interest in cryptozoology will never completely disappear, it's just matured a bit. I'm now less interested in outlandish creatures that in all likelihood could never exist, and more interested in the cryptids that we know did exist at one point, like the thylacine or the ivory-billed woodpecker, or that are completely biologically plausible as real animals. But it's not just plausibility that I look for when researching cryptids these days. Anyone with even a passing familiarity with cryptozoology will be well aware that the field is no stranger to elaborate hoaxes. So finding credible sources for cryptid sightings is of utmost importance to me. And who could be a more credible source than one of the most famous naturalists and ornithologists of all time? Welcome to Mount Molehill, a place where even the smallest mysteries become mountains. I'm Chris and this week I'm delving into the mystery of the Bird of Washington, a sea eagle first described by famed American ornithologist John J. Audubon in 1826. This is a story of one man's quest to document every species of bird in America, a quest which culminated not only in what is today one of the world's most valuable books, but also in one of ornithology's greatest mysteries. The Bird of Washington. Is it real? Or is it a hoax? And if it is, why would one of America's most beloved naturalists lie about its existence? Let's make a mountain out of this molehill. So first things first, in order to understand the mystery behind Audubon's enigmatic eagle, we have to understand a little bit about the man himself and his book, The Birds of America. John James Audubon was born in 1785 in Haiti, then the French colony of Saint-Domingue. 
His father, Jean Audubon, was a former French naval officer turned privateer who at one point had been imprisoned by the British during the American Revolution. The situation between colonists and African slaves in Saint-Domingue became increasingly tense, and in 1788, the elder Audubon moved his family to France. Being the child of moneyed parentage, John was a young man of many talents. He fenced, danced, rode horses, and played violin. But from a very early age, Audubon was fascinated by nature. His father said of him, He would point out the elegant movement of the birds and the beauty and softness of their plumage. He called my attention to their show of pleasure or sense of danger, their perfect forms and splendid attire. He would speak of their departure and return with the seasons. John attended military school, but after failing the officer's qualification test, he focused once again on his passion for nature and, in particular, his passion for birds. To avoid conscription in the Napoleonic Wars, Audubon emigrated to the United States in 1803 using falsified documents procured by his father. His father set him up with a partnership in a Pennsylvania lead mining operation, but that didn't really end up panning out. In fact, Audubon would spend the next decade trying his hand at a number of different business ventures to varying degrees of success. And up to this point in his life, bills and obligations to his family had kept him from pursuing his true passions as a naturalist, but at the age of 35, after seeing no real success in his previous ventures, Audubon began what would become his life's work. His mission? To catalog and paint every species of bird in America. Audubon dubbed his future work the Birds of America, and embarked on an expedition across the American West during the first half of the 19th century, collecting bird specimens, documenting their physiology and behaviors, and painting them. This was a time in America's history when the West was truly wild. The Louisiana Purchase had just been, well, purchased a few years prior, and everything west of the Mississippi was either Spanish territory or pristine wilderness that had been mostly unexplored by European colonists. Wildlife was plentiful and varied, and it was the perfect setting for Audubon, a trained taxidermist and artist, to ply his trades. At this point in history, documenting wildlife was nothing new to the world of science, but what set Audubon apart was his approach. With his creative use of wires and a grid system, Audubon was able to mount birds in natural poses and represent their proportions more accurately than his contemporaries. Using a combination of watercolors, charcoal, and pastels, along with natural landscapes painted by commissioned artists, Audubon was able to depict birds posing naturally in their natural habitats, which was atypical for the time. It took Audubon 12 years to complete the Birds of America, and he identified 25 new species and 12 new subspecies of birds along the way. First published in 1827, the Birds of America consisted of four volumes produced using copper-plated etching, engraving, and aquatint. Each print was watercolored by hand. As you can imagine, this was a time-consuming and expensive process, and it would have been prohibitively expensive for Audubon to print the Birds of America speculatively before securing buyers. So what he did was sell the Birds of America under a subscription model. Subscribers paid for a new set of five prints every month, which consisted of three prints of small birds, one print of a medium-sized bird, and one print of a large bird. And he focused on wealthy patrons, eventually earning the likes of French King Charles X, 
Lord Spencer, and Henry Clay as subscribers. Somewhere around 200 copies were produced with 120 complete sets surviving today. And within Audubon's book we find today's mystery, that of Falco Washingtoni, also known as Washington's Eagle, the Bird of Washington, and the Great Sea Eagle. Audubon named the bird after George Washington, stating in Ornithological Biography, which is his textual companion piece to the Birds of America, that the eagle was indisputably the noblest bird of its genus that has yet been discovered in the United States. I trust I shall be allowed to honor it with the name of one yet nobler, who was the savior of his country, and whose name will ever be dear to it. If America has reason to be proud of her Washington, so has she to be proud of her great eagle. Washington's eagle was an impressive bird. With uniformly red-brown plumage, a 10-foot wingspan, and a height of 3 foot 7 inches, Washington's eagle was more than 25% larger than America's two other native eagles, the golden eagle and the bald eagle. Audubon himself only encountered live specimens of the bird of Washington five times throughout his extensive travels in the American wilderness. During one of the encounters, Audubon shot and killed a Washington's eagle, which he then taxidermied and used to document and paint the bird for plate 11 of the Birds of America. But here's the mystery. Does this bird exist today? Did it ever exist? A few ornithologists contemporary to Audubon also claim to have seen, killed, or captured the bird of Washington, but none of the collected specimens of Washington's eagle survive today, and there have been no verified sightings of the bird in the modern era. So really the only evidence we have that Washington's eagle is a real bird is Audubon's drawing and a few written accounts from the mid-19th century and there are quite a few theories as to the true nature of Audubon's mystery eagle. One is that Washington's eagle was actually a juvenile specimen or a subspecies of bald eagle. Given the description of Washington's eagle as a uniformly red-brown bird, you might be thinking, wait, isn't the bald eagle known for its distinctive white head and tail? Well, you'd be right, it is, but for the first five or so years of a bald eagle's life, it goes through several plumage stages, ranging from dark brown to brown with white streaking before arriving at its definitive plumage. So at first blush, it does seem possible that Washington's eagle is a case of mistaken bald eagle identity, and in fact, some ornithologists had previously classified juvenile bald eagles as a separate species from the adults, owing to the pronounced difference in plumage. But there are a few problems with this theory. Would a renowned naturalist like Audubon, who specialized in birds, really have mistaken a juvenile bald eagle for an as-yet undescribed species? Well, probably not. In Audubon's time, bald eagles were abundant, and he documented numerous encounters with both the mature bald and juvenile brown varieties. In fact, plate 126 of the Birds of America depicts one such juvenile bald eagle. So Audubon was familiar with plumage variation in bald eagles, yet still described Washington's eagle as a distinct species. On top of that, the dimensions given for Washington's eagle by Audubon far exceed those of an adult bald eagle, let alone a juvenile. And without getting too far into the weeds of eagle anatomy, Audubon described a number of other features belonging to the bird of Washington that are just incompatible with the bald eagle. 
Audubon also noted that the bird of Washington nested in ground nests, something that is exceedingly rare for bald eagles. They only do this in the absence of trees. And the Ohio River Valley, where Audubon first described Washington's eagle, is lushly forested. Another similar theory is that Washington's eagle was a misidentification of the golden eagle, but again, Audubon would have been quite familiar with golden eagles. And the anatomy and behavior of the bird of Washington, as described by Audubon, are simply incompatible with those of the golden eagle. A third theory is that Washington's eagle was a genuine species, but that it became extinct after Audubon's sightings. And there is some evidence to support this. Remember that Audubon himself only observed live specimens of the bird of Washington on five separate occasions, and he noted that the eagle was already rare and possibly near extinction during his lifetime. And Audubon was not the only ornithologist to claim to have seen the bird. In fact, one naturalist, Jared P. Kirtland, who initially had been skeptical of Audubon's eagle, later recorded a sighting of his own in 1842. There are contemporaneous written accounts of stuffed specimens housed in several different museums. One Dr. Lemuel Hayward is even said to have acquired a live bird of Washington and kept it for, quote, a considerable time. Further evidence to support this theory can be found in the other mystery birds found in the Birds of America. Aside from Falco Washingtoni, there are five other birds in the Birds of America, Townsend's finch, Cuvier's kinglet, the carbonated swamp warbler, the small-headed flycatcher, and the blue mountain warbler that have never been identified. Interestingly enough, Audubon's specimen of the Townsend's finch still exists in the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in D.C., but after examination by Kenneth Parks of the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, it was determined that the Townsend's finch specimen was likely a known species, a dixissel albeit one with aberrant plumage. In 2014, however, bird hobbyist Kyle Blaney photographed a bird that is strikingly similar to the Townsend's finch specimen. Again, this bird is likely another dick sissel with aberrant plumage, and while evidence for the existence of one Audubon mystery bird isn't evidence for the existence of the bird of Washington, at the very least we can say that just because Audubon's mystery birds haven't been identified yet doesn't mean that they never will be. And there isn't really any evidence against the theory that Washington's eagle was a real bird that has since gone extinct, but that's because the claim is largely unfalsifiable. There's no way to prove that it doesn't exist or that it didn't exist. Perhaps one day one of the purported specimens of Washington's eagle will be found in a museum vault somewhere, at which time science will be able to prove for certain whether or not it represents a new species, but... Until then, we can't really prove it one way or the other. And evaluating the theories we've discussed so far, I think it's safe to say that the bird of Washington isn't a case of misidentification of any sort. It just doesn't make sense. Audubon knew birds, and it just wouldn't make any sense for someone of Audubon's background to mistake one of America's other birds for Audubon's eagle as he described it. But what if Audubon's almost mythical stature as a naturalist is the problem? What if his other work in ornithology, which is nothing short of astounding, provides a cloak of credibility that has just prevented us from asking the question we should all be asking? What if Washington's eagle is just a lie? Well, that's exactly what it is, according to one researcher. 
Matthew R. Halley is a scientist whose areas of interest include ornithology and the history of science and art. Here are just a few of his accomplishments in those fields taken directly from his website, which I will link to in the show notes. He, quote, exposed Thomas Jefferson's unpublished ornithology manuscripts, located five unpublished letters of Audubon, including the original prospectus for the Birds of America, relocated Audubon's type specimen of western meadowlark Sternella neglecta, which was lost for 150 plus years, located Alexander Wilson's type specimen of Falco Niger, thought to be lost or destroyed in the 19th century, exposed the composite nature of Wilson's tawny thrush, Turtus mustelinus, and the misidentification of Turtus ustulatus, and relocated Thomas Say's holotype of an extinct cephalopod, Baculides ovatus, lost for 180 years, end quote. Clearly, Halley has some experience in digging up lost scientific artifacts, and most pertinent to this podcast is a paper in which he, quote, demonstrated widespread scientific fraud in the works of John James Audubon, end quote. In June 2020, Halley published an article in the Bulletin of the British Ornithologist Club titled, Audubon's Bird of Washington, Unraveling the Fraud that Launched the Birds of America. And the following month, he joined Nate Swick of the American Birding Podcast to further discuss the topic. I reached out to both Matthew Halley and Nate Swick, but did not get a response from either in time to include them in this podcast, so the best that I can do is summarize the article in the discussion, which is what I'm going to do here in a moment. But if you're at all interested in this, and I assume you are if you're still listening, I encourage you to check out both, which I will link to in the show notes. So just assume that everything coming up in this next section was taken from one of those two sources. Halley's research quite convincingly lays out a tale of fraud perpetuated by perhaps the most vaunted figure in American ornithology. He begins his article by exposing evidence of plagiarism in Plate 11 of the Birds of America. And remember that Plate 11 is the plate that features the Bird of Washington. He uses side-by-side -side comparisons of Plate 11 and an earlier image labeled Golden Eagle that appeared in the Cyclopedia published between 1802 and 1820. To the layperson, the similarity between the two images is self-evident, but Halley, being an ornithologist, is able to further describe some common anomalies between the two images that point towards plagiarism. Both the Golden Eagle and the Bird of Washington images have 10 tail feathers. Real eagles have 12. Both images have what appears to be a tomial tooth on their beak, a feature of falcons, not eagles. Both have a weird concave depression in their skulls. Both birds are awkwardly perched atop a rock. But there is also one major difference between the images that further points to plagiarism. According to Halley, the foot of the golden eagle image is anatomically incorrect, and Audubon realized this, so what did he do? He copied a different drawing of a bird's foot from another section of the cyclopedia and transposed it onto his painting of the bird of Washington. So if we accept that Audubon plagiarized his image of the bird of Washington, we should also accept that he probably never had a specimen of the bird in the first place, which remember, he said he used a specimen of the bird that he shot and killed to make plate 11. But if he never had a specimen of the bird of Washington, and he just made the bird up out of whole cloth, how do you explain the contemporaneous accounts of other scientists seeing specimens themselves 
or being aware of the existence of specimens? Well, one of the most well-known claims comes from zoologist Richard Harlan, who was accompanied by Audubon himself during his encounters with a live and stuffed specimen of the Bird of Washington. In March of 1830, the two men visited a place called McAaron's Garden. There they observed a captive eagle which Harlan believed to be the Bird of Washington. Now remember, the Bird of Washington plate does bear some resemblance to a juvenile bald eagle, and Audubon, knowing this and knowing that the Bird of Washington did not actually exist, corrected Harlan and explained that the bird in question was simply a young bald eagle. The two later visited a taxidermy shop owned by Joseph Brano wherein they found a stuffed specimen of an immature baldy, and Audubon, knowing that the bird was dead and could therefore never molt into its white-headed adult plumage, convinced Harlan that this specimen was indeed his bird of Washington. And these are just a few of the key pieces of evidence laid out by Halley, all of which I can't cover here in the interest of time, but I encourage you to read the full article because it's fascinating. And like Pee Wee Herman said, It's like you're unraveling a big cable knit sweater that someone keeps knitting and knitting and knitting and knitting and knitting. I suppose the final question left to answer is, if indeed the Bird of Washington is a big fat phony, why did Audubon do it? Well, Halley believes that Audubon's motives were mostly economic. If you'll remember, he had tried his hand unsuccessfully at different business ventures prior to committing himself to working on the Birds of Washington, and that book didn't begin publishing until Audubon was already 41 years old. Prior to the Birds of America, Audubon had failed to distinguish himself and, in fact, had been rejected for membership by the Academy of Natural Sciences in 1824 where he proposed his initial plan for the Birds of America. At its start, the Birds of America was not a success. It wasn't until he presented his Bird of Washington plate to audiences in London and Edinburgh that he gained the support of wealthy patrons and became an almost overnight sensation. He had finally achieved the acclaim and success that he had been seeking his whole life, and after building his reputation on the wings of Washington's eagle, there was too much at stake for him to ever admit that the whole thing was a lie. And it's important to point out that this lie spread much further than the European aristocracy and the scientific community. The Bird of Washington, for a time, was a symbol of national pride in America. The song you're listening to right now, titled The Bird of Washington, was written by James G. Clark in 1857, six years after Audubon's death, 30 years after Audubon introduced The Bird of Washington to the world. Even after the man was gone, there was too much invested into the myth of Washington's eagle to earnestly evaluate its authenticity. And now, we return to the Loch Ness Monster because it, much like the Bird of Washington, was made famous by a lie. Rumors of a large beast living in Loch Ness go back possibly as far as 565 AD. But it wasn't until the first photograph of Nessie, the so-called surgeon's photograph from 1934, was published that the creature gained international notoriety. And it wasn't until 60 years after that that the general public became aware that the photograph was in fact an elaborate hoax. It's now 2023, 
nearly 200 years after Audubon first revealed his plate of Washington's eagle, and very few people are aware of its dubious origins. And it's just like that famous quote from Jonathan Swift, falsehood flies and truth comes limping after it. Mount Molehill is written, produced, and edited by me, Chris, with music by myself and Alex Bainter. Any voices other than mine featured on the podcast are computer-generated unless otherwise noted. All of the sources used in this episode can be found in the show notes. This podcast features materials protected by the Fair Use Guidelines of Section 107 of the Copyright Act, all rights reserved to the copyright owners. If you have a molehill that you'd like me to turn into a mountain, whether it's a mystery that you just can't solve or just an interesting topic you'd like me to delve into, please reach out. You can email me at mountmolehillpodcast at gmail.com or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 505-218-6894. Follow us on Instagram to see updates and supplemental material for the show. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with another episode in two weeks.